Hey there, this is Angel Donovan with another episode of Dating Sex Relationships. This is a show where we look for experts on the topics of dating sex and relationships from every perspective we can, looking for people with real life world experience in these areas or academics and researchers who've done the research to verify the truth about dating sex and relationships. And today we're looking at the topic of oral sex. We're going to get into some practical details of female anatomy and specifically the clitoris, and look at the stages of female arousal when giving them cunnilingus oral sex and how that all works out. We're also going to be looking at the benefits of porn. We've spoken a lot about some of the issues with porn in the past and specifically abuse of porn, overuse of it. But today what we're getting is some interesting examples of where it's being used positively in therapy for men with certain types of sexual difficulties. So we see there that the world isn't black or white. When we're trying to get to the truth of things, often there's a gray area, and the gray area means it depends on the context, it depends on your situation. Sometimes porn can be a good thing, used in a certain way, and at other times it can be negative and negatively affect your health, your drive, and so on. So that's another interesting aspect we're getting into today. Today's guest is Ian Kerner, PhD. He's a licensed psychotherapist, and he's a nationally recognized sexuality counselor in the U.S. He specializes in sex therapy, couples therapy, and working with individuals with a range of relational issues. And you may know him as the author of the best-selling book, She Comes First, The Thinking Man's Guide to Pleasuring Women, which, of course, is all about oral sex and cunnilingus. Now, he wrote this 12 years ago. And it's still a number one bestseller in human sexuality, which is pretty amazing on Amazon. And it's been a New York Times bestseller. So Ian is very, very well known. He's featured on pretty much every single media outlet you can think of, like TV, the press, and so on over the last decade. He's also the founder more recently of a site called goodinbed.com. And it's a site which brings together a whole bunch of leading sex and relationships experts And they give out advice on the site, and they also carry out original research on human intimacy and sexuality. As usual, to get the show notes and the transcript, download the MP3, all the good stuff from the show, and links to everything Ian mentions or I mentioned during the show, you can go to datingskillsreview.com forward slash podcast. Pick out the episode there, and you're all good. You can also get all of that in your email inbox by signing up for our newsletter. Go to datingskillsreview.com forward slash newsletter, pop your email in, and you get the show notes every time we put an episode out going forward. Now let's meet best-selling author Ian Kerner. I'm Angel Donovan, and this is the Dating Skills Podcast. This is a 14-year ongoing mission to discover the truth about what works in dating, sex, and relationships, to become a better man. Join me as I leave no stone unturned. Chase down every expert, role model, and mentor with insights to get us to that goal as fast as possible. This show is about bringing you the best of that information so that you can take it in and change your life for the better, step-by-step, episode-by-episode. Ian, thank you so much for joining us today. My pleasure, Angel. Great, so let's dive straight into a little bit of background on you've been around for a long time. It was 12 years, I believe, now, and before, of course, you were working a therapist. Could you 
give us a little bit of idea. What started you on the journey that got you writing this book that became so popular? Yeah, so what started me writing She Comes First? Uh, well, going back to my uh, early adulthood and my, my teenage years, uh, I suffered from uh, premature ejaculation which is actually probably the most common male sexual dysfunction. I mean, we tend to hear a lot more about erectile disorder because we have a pharmaceutical treatment for it through Viagra and Levitra, but really uh, premature ejaculation is a much bigger problem and it affects men of all ages. And back then, I really felt kind of like a sexual cripple. I kind of stumbled through sex. I, I didn't always realize that I wasn't able to satisfy women. Eventually, when I did realize that, I became quite depressed. And uh, ultimately, um, I did uh, manage to find a girlfriend who was loving and supportive, but really cared very much about her own orgasms and her own satisfaction as well. And she kind of demanded that we go to see a sex therapist. And we ended up seeing a couples therapist at the time who had some specialization in sex therapy. But it was really, um, it was really an eye opener. I mean, the relationship itself did not last. The tips and tools I was given did not necessarily work, but a huge part of the process was just being able to uh, talk about the problem and share it with both uh, an objective third party as well as my girlfriend at the time. So having that permission to talk about a sexual problem and to be able to reframe it as normal was huge for me and was life-changing. That's really awesome. I mean, that's a great point to bring up because I think a lot of the guys on the call listening to this podcast have similar, if we all have issues, you know, I grew up with one concern, other guys will uh, have other concerns. You had one concern. How old were you when this took place? When I went to see the therapist. When you became aware of this, because it sounded like maybe it was a few years or so. Was it something that developed or really from your teenage years? I mean, it was just kind of something you had. Yeah, no, it really began it really began in my teenage years. Obviously, when you're masturbating, you don't really realize how long you can last. You don't think about it. But really, as soon as I started uh, dating women and engaging in sex play and sexual activities, uh, I kind of became aware of it. And the other thing was that um, I really felt that the only way to pleasure a woman or to engage with a woman was with a focus on the penis. And only much later in life did I learn that the vast majority of women do not orgasm from intercourse alone, that all of the sensitive nerve endings that contribute to the female orgasm are really on the surface of the vulva, that most intercourse positions do not actually stimulate the clitoris directly and the clitoris being the powerhouse and sort of the center of the female orgasm. So ultimately, um, as I sort of gathered and learned this information, I really began to find other ways to pleasure women and other ways, other types of sex scripts, the main one involving oral sex. And so that really led me to develop a new sense of sexual self-esteem, to know that I could pleasure women, maybe not what was in my mind is the traditional way, but there are many paths to orgasm uh, and to pleasure. So being able to um, discover uh, a consistent path to being able to pleasure women was really eye-opening and, and groundbreaking. And uh, I still, uh, although my issue with premature ejaculation has improved considerably over the years. Um, was there anything you did or was it 
as a consequence of, you think, maybe calming your nerves because you learned how the cunnilingus? And- yeah, I mean, I think, first of all, just being able to um, slow down, pleasure a woman with my mouth, feel all of the excitement and sensations in my own body, attuned to my own process of sexual response, having more control. Look, when you're lying flat on a bed with your mouth connected to a woman and not your penis, if you feel yourself getting heavily aroused, you can do something before you reach the point of uh, ejaculatory inevitability. And so I would say that cunnilingus gave me the tools to sort of slow down and really familiarize myself with my own process of sexual response, along with developing self-esteem and confidence. Now, the other thing is that anxiety plays such a big role in so many sexual dysfunctions for both men and women. And so if you're if you're a guy with erectile disorder or if you're a woman who can't orgasm or you're a guy like me who suffers from premature ejaculation, the anxiety is a big part of the problem. And so being able to also alleviate the anxiety and the stress was also a part of it. And I tried many different techniques along the way, many common, well-known behavioral interventions like the squeeze technique, the stop-start technique. I tried various medications at different points. Today, I work a lot with uh, men who suffer from premature ejaculation, and I always advise them to, first off, develop alternative sex scripts that lead to pleasure with their partners. I go over all of the behavioral interventions, but also today we have um, different types of pharmaceutical interventions for premature ejaculation, which can also help that I did not have the benefit of when I was growing up. That's interesting. I didn't know we had those those kind of pharmaceuticals. Certainly, we've learned that one of the side effects of a common antidepressant, an SSRI, something like uh, Zoloft or Paxil or Prozac, one of the common side effects of an antidepressant is that it does delay ejaculation. So for a man who suffers from premature ejaculation and has a lot of anxiety around it, a small dose of uh, an SSRI can be helpful. There are also lidocaine-based sprays that you can spray on the penis that uh, numb the penis, but don't numb it so greatly that it eliminates sensation. One product that I like a lot uh, that's FDA-approved is called Promescent. And the reason I like that product is because with most of those lidocaine sprays, they transfer to the partner. So a woman will start to feel numbness. But this particular product, and it's the only product, it absorbs, they have an absorption technology. So it absorbs through the membrane of the penis pretty quickly. And there's no transference of that numbness of the product to a partner. These sound like workarounds though. I mean, are these your last resort? I normally prefer to come at these things from a natural fixed standpoint. So when you think about the actual cause of it, the root cause, do you have a theory about that, an idea? This is why it is. Sometimes I can't always fix this. So I'll, I'll go to these tools, which we can use in the meantime. Well, absolutely. I mean, first of all, you know, when you're doing sex therapy, there's no one cause and there's no one solution. And so it's really eclectic and you're pulling together a combination of different approaches uh, and none exist in a vacuum. So I would never just tell somebody who suffers from premature ejaculation to take an SSRI or to use a treatment. I would always think about the much larger context, especially the um, relational context. There are some issues, in the end, Angel, there are some issues that I feel very strongly should not be medicalized. Like right here, right now in the U.S., we have a drug that looks like it's going to be approved by the FDA to treat low female desire. And I adamantly believe that desire 
is uh, unless somebody is really suffering for medical reasons from low desire, I really do not think that desire is an issue that requires pharmaceuticals. On the other hand, with something like premature ejaculation, where so many men suffer from it chronically and have suffered from it for their whole lives and have tried the behavioral interventions and that they have not really helped, I think that there are some problems that do lend themselves more to some sort of a pharmaceutical intervention of some sort. I always am uh, interested in the bigger relational context. I'm always interested in the connection between people sexually. I'm always interested in how they are trying to create their own desire through fantasy and other types of arousal. Um, that's a long way of saying that um, I'm very flexible, very elastic, and very eclectic, but I know firsthand the sort of the loneliness and the silent desperation that people feel when it comes to their sexual problems, and I really do want to help them. Right, yeah. So rather than saying, I'm sorry, I'm not going to use pharmaceuticals, even though they could help you, say, like, look, let's fix this. Maybe it's not the perfect solution, but we have to get it fixed. Right, or let's use it. Let's try this for a short period of time. Yeah, great. So we've had, we've spoken about porn and masturbation and how that can affect our hormones in the past on this show. I'm just wondering if you think that's one of the main things today, because we've heard about the growth of porn, obviously. It's hard to escape these days. Do you think that is something? I don't know if you've seen your practice. Has this become a more common problem in your practice over time, or is it the same? And maybe we're giving more attention to it, but it's always been there. I think that um, because porn is free, because it's so accessible, because there's so much of it, it has uh, created new issues for our culture. And I, I work with a lot of men and women and couples who identify porn as being problematic in some way. And it's interesting to me in that many of the young men I work with have really grown up almost never having a non-porn-based orgasm. They've only ever masturbated to pornography for their entire sexual development. So that's interesting. On the whole, um, I tend to find that um, we are very alarmist about pornography, that um, we're very quick to label pornography as addictive, that we do not decouple masturbation and pornography. So we sort of lump them together and therefore we look at masturbation as an unhealthy act, which is the opposite is true. If I'm working with somebody and they're masturbating regularly, to me, that's a sign of health. If somebody comes into my office and they're not masturbating, that's a sign that they may be unhealthy or that they may be shut down. Right. Is it not a U-curve? Yeah. Is it not more like a U-curve or rather an N-curve? There's a happy balance in the middle, basically. You don't want zero. You don't want like 10 times a day. Right. Right. Well, you mean, you know, you want to be aware there is an issue called hypersexuality where people are using uh, sex, masturbation, pornography to either seek some sort of validation or to self-regulate their emotions in some way. And so certainly there are unhealthy uses. But on the whole, I find that um, pornography can have uh, largely a very positive impact on people and on their relationships and that there can be very much be a space to explore porn as a couple, to use it as a way of fantasizing, to smooth out libido gap. I know plenty of men who will say, you know, my wife was pregnant and for the three months 
leading up to the birth of a child and for three or six months afterwards, we rarely had sex, but being able to masturbate to pornography really helped us to sort of help me to kind of get through that gap. And I know a, a lot of men who say that because they're able to masturbate to porn and there's such a wide variety of porn that they feel less compelled to cheat. So I know plenty of couples and plenty of uh, women who enjoy pornography on their own and use porn as a way of um, creating some arousal, especially when they're in a long-term relationship and sex has become somewhat familiar to them. So I actually think that there's probably way more pros to the pornification of our culture than cons. It's great to hear this. It's quite a different viewpoint to the mainstream. And I really like your practical tools focus. It's like, you know, like my wife's pregnant. She doesn't feel like having sex right now. I don't want to cheat. So I'll use porn for a while. That makes perfect sense. Yeah, absolutely. I think porn can also be a way to um, get in touch with some of your erotic interests or erotic themes or to explore taboos that you wouldn't normally get to explore in life. Uh, But, you know, like, look, like anything, it can lead to problematic behaviors. I just find that I'm often in the interesting position of people coming to me and saying, I'm a porn addict. I need help. I'm addicted. And that's really very often based in their own shame around masturbation, their own cultural sense of what's normal. And I kind of really have to kind of normalize their pornography use for them and get out from under that definition of addiction. That definition is not helpful. Right, right. It's really interesting. Could you give us a rough guideline to what is healthy versus non Like you'd say, oh, yeah, maybe you are doing a bit too much porn versus, no, this is fine. This is really normal. Is there some kind of line you could draw as as guidance for people? I did an interesting experiment. I had about 20 men who all around the same time told me that they were having problems with pornography. Either it was zapping their libido, so they didn't quite have enough sort of libido for their partners. Uh, Some felt that they were having a hard time focusing during sex, that they were sort of recycling images from porn in their mind, and it was hard to focus on real lovemaking. And some men were having um, some erectile issues, They were having a hard time maintaining an erection during intercourse because they had sort of gotten acclimated to a kind of pressure and friction with their hands that's not easily reproducible during actual sex. In clinical terms, it's called an idiosyncratic masturbatory style. So I had all of these men in different ages. Some were single, some were in relationships. And I did an experiment with them all at the same time. I said, all right, for the next month, eliminate internet porn from your uh, masturbation habits. You don't have to stop masturbating. You don't have to stop using erotica or magazines or even videos, just internet porn. And let's see what happens. Let's keep a journal. And um, it was really interesting. First of all, across the board, the men masturbated uh, much less because it just wasn't as easily as available. For many guys, they don't have DVD players. They don't even know where to get a DVD anymore. In some cases, the men had a lot more libido, and they were really bringing that to their partners. And in some cases, their partners were really happy about that. In some cases, the partners were like, you need to go back to whatever you were doing before. (laughs) I don't want all of this uh, sex. Um, But here was the most interesting thing for me, was that I really, along the way, encouraged the men to masturbate to fantasies of their own creation or to their own erotic history or to their own memories. And for a lot of men, it was very powerful to find themselves 
thinking about like their teenage sweetheart again or their first love or the college girlfriend that they hooked up with, like to kind of rebuild their own sort of erotic database and erotic history. And so for me, it would be problematic if somebody is only masturbating to pornography, internet pornography. It's, it would be like the equivalent though of somebody saying, I only watch TV. I never go to theater. I never listen to music. I never read books. I only watch TV. And I do believe that we should be able to tap into our own sexual histories through masturbation, to our own fantasies, to our to, that there should be a creative element to it. Or that there should be a sense of reality to it. I'm saying this because I have a theory, like I'll, I'll just run past you. I think we can rewire our brains. You know, when you're masturbating, there's dopamine, there's the other hormones, which I think in the stimulating the brain in a certain way, uh, stimulating neural pathways, the development of neural pathways. And so when you're doing this as a habit and you're using, say, some type of porn, I actually think that if I decided, perhaps I've never been attracted to one ethnic type, right? We'll say it's uh, Asian, Japanese or whatever. And I start masturbating with Japanese porn all the time. I think I could guarantee that within a month, I'm starting to notice Japanese women around me. I'm feeling more attracted with them. I'm thinking about, yeah, I'd like to date a Japanese woman. Just because basically I've, I feel like I've, you can rewire and reprogram your brain based on all the chemicals you're stirring up at that and the wiring, you're putting these two things together, right? These visuals with, with the stimulatory action. And it's just natural that your brain starts thinking that way and evolving that way. Yeah, there's been a lot of studies around neuroscience and porn, and um, I don't know that there's yet, there's a clear verdict. And then is the developing brain different than the mature brain? I guess in the end, for me, it, it's very individualized. For example, I work with a patient of mine who has um, pedophilic tendencies, but this is a person who has enormous empathy with children, recognizes that sex with a child would be illegal, would be unethical, would be abusive. And so this is a person who suffers because he has pretty strong pedophiliac tendencies, but has never actually had sex with children. But being able to masturbate to pornography that generally features adult actors who look like children and who are consensually in the porn is a real outlet for him. And it's a real way for him to manage this, this issue that he has. You don't think that that could be building, kind of helping him to impress that standard in his brain? If he kind of forced himself to only masturbate to adults that, that don't look very young, like say they all look like they're in their 30s or whatever, you think that would help? or? I don't think it would really help. I think the orientation came first and that the orientation is is there and it's largely a biogenetic orientation. I don't think that it can be rewired. I mean, I just in, in the same way that you can't rewire a gay man to be interested in women or you can't really rewire a, a heterosexually orientated man to be gay, I, I don't really think that you can rewire a lot of what... Uh, people's sexual preferences are. Great, great. Thanks for this discussion. I wasn't expecting it. We run down this corridor because uh, it was really, really interesting. I think it's really relevant to people at home as well. But some of the other things you, you spoke about in your background, you had this 
mature-minded woman. I don't know how old you were, uh, 24, but she was very open to talking about it. Yeah, like mm. 20. Oh, great. 20. And see, so you were lucky because you had this open-minded, mature-minded woman who was like, let's deal with this. You kind of got lucky there, I guess. And then you went to sex therapy at that age, which you're also very lucky to, yeah. to be doing. I don't know if you were already thinking about becoming a therapist yourself and that left you open to it. No, I was not. I didn't become a therapist until later in life. I I dabbled with many other things, but then um, kind of returned to that or, or that experience always stayed with me and uh, eventually sort of uh, merged the two. But yeah, I, I was lucky, especially since I lived in a world in which there was no information and no access to information. Books like mine had not been written. Even magazines like Men's Health were not out there on the stands. I mean, what was available was the Kinsey Report, things that were very uh, statistic-oriented and, and and really dry. So the generations growing up today have, have access to so much more information uh, around uh, sexuality. And one of the things that I love so much is the, the communities that build up, say, for um, gender queer people or trans. A positive sex, a positive sex community. Yeah, hey, that's a great support. We've had some members of that on the show previously. Yes, yeah, so there's a lot of outlets. So I, I just wanted to bring that up because like, guys, no matter what type of issue you have at home, like you said, like talking about it with someone who's objective. I liked what you said earlier about normalizing their views because people when we're on our own, we build these ideas. And there's also so much information on the internet that you could go either way, right? You can find an opinion telling you you're a complete psycho or is someone telling you a completely norm, depending on where you go. So there's a question of information quality out there too. Absolutely. And it's still very easy to, especially when you're young, to confuse porn sex with real sex. And uh, I think, you know, the statistics of women faking orgasm are higher today than they were a generation ago. And so even with all of this information out there, it doesn't mean that we're not repeating the same problems or living through the same issues. That's interesting. Also, have you got a plan to break through this? to the next generation. <laughs> How do we get to the next level? <laughs> Coming back to, you know, She Comes First, that book has been out now for, you know, 12 or 13 years and remains a bestseller. And uh, I'm always touched, A, by um, the men who write to me, many who are young men in college, who some suffer from premature ejaculation. Some are just so happy to have learned sort of and to have an accurate view of female sexuality and to be able to, to pleasure women. I also often hear from mothers and fathers who have given She Comes First to their sons as presents when they turn like 16 or 17 to help them sort of become sort of sexually civilized adults. Yeah, it would be so cool if all parents were like that. Yeah. It change the um, world. Yeah, it would be. And I'm also a father of, of two sons. Um, so I... I think about this a lot, and uh, I, I think it's just really important for me as a parent to be able to lead the conversation and co-construct the conversation and enter the dialogue. There's also, there's just so much great science out there right now that is really explaining how sexuality works and how male sexuality differs from female sexuality and uh, how we can achieve mutual pleasure out there. So I feel like in some ways the science is demystifying sex and allowing us to kind of just build like a, a solid foundation uh, based on pleasure. Yeah, that's great. I mean, we, we've had a lot of people talking about it. I think it's really exciting the times we live in. The science is just developing so fast now. I think also people like you and a lot of the other people we've had on the show, they're pulling out 
the science and putting it into easily consumable form, like you just mentioned, because it's not always done the science, but more and more today it is. Even relatively entertaining, no matter how ADD you are, you can still watch it and get informed <laughs> yeah. and, and get what you want out of it. Okay, so I want to make sure we do cover the, like, the main topic, which is cunnilingus and where this all came from. Great. Um, so is this a tool that you still recommend quite highly today? It's been 12 years and so on. Is it really kind of one of the best tools in a toolbox, like to have a mindset of she comes first and cunnilingus? Yeah, I mean, so science has shown that for women to really cycle through the process of arousal and to to achieve uh, orgasm, that parts of the female brain that are associated with stress and anxiety kind of need to deactivate. Those parts kind of need to become still and that women sort of enter into an almost trance-like state. So the first thing that I always try and encourage guys to do is to really create an environment that is secure, safe, that's very relaxing, that can enable that sort of trance-like process. That's a great tip. In terms of the practicalities of it, what would be the things that you might get wrong like some specific details, I don't know. Also, there's sort of like the early stage of arousal where a person is first starting to really get turned on and to get aroused. And then there's the second stage of arousal sort of leading up to orgasm. So in the early stages of arousal, I think that that is a great time to like enjoy foreplay, to share fantasies, uh, to add a lot of novelty. But then at a certain point, you don't want to be focused on novelty. Because if you're thinking about all the new things that you're doing and you're sort of trying to teach your brain to do all of these new things, the parts of the brain that need to deactivate so that they can just experience pleasure will not deactivate. So I think a mistake that a lot of men make is to try and sort of have like this porn style sex where you're always introducing a new position or switching something up. You know, there is a place for that, but then there is also a a point in which you just want to transition into being able to provide the kind of stimulation that can really enable that total mental letting go. And that's where I think cunnilingus is really important. Great. You're, you're with a girl. You're starting to fool around. Share that hot fantasy with her. Try some really fun positions. Do some role playing. Amp up the excitement. But then there is going to be a point where she is, you know, turned on and ready for more um, substantial arousal. And that is where you're going to want to transition into the kind of sex that provides very rhythmic, very persistent, very consistent clitoral stimulation. And I really am pretty adamant that uh, unless you're maybe using a vibrator or have a kind of manual stimulation that works, that oral stimulation, cunnilingus oral sex, is the best way to provide that consistent, persistent, rhythmic clitoral stimulation. Right. I know when I was younger, I had some girlfriends who found it difficult to get off in other ways than, than oral. And we could relate that to masturbation also. Like if a girl's been getting used to playing with her clitoris a lot, because I know you talk about the clitoris versus the vagina and like this, the stimulation with penetration. Do you emphasize that the clitoris is the center of the orgasm? Yeah, I think that... Um... Male and female genitalia is really homologous. So we're all born of sort of the same embryonic tissue, but then at a certain point we differentiate into male and female and our sex organs differentiate, but we're using all of the same uh, tissue and parts just in different ways. And so whereas 
the male penis grows out, female sexual genitalia kind of grows in, so grows inwards, but it's still all there and it's all connected. And so really when you're stimulating the clitoris, you're really stimulating the entire arousal platform. But again, if you're not stimulating the clitoris, if you're just engaging in missionary sex that is not hitting the clitoris at all, and for different women, the clitoris can be placed either closer to the vaginal opening or farther away from the vaginal opening. The women who are able to have sex, who are able to have orgasm more consistently during intercourse are generally the ones who have um, clitorises that are um, like a few centimeters closer to the vaginal entrance so that they're being persistently stimulated. Right, so it's higher up near the pelvic bone. It's actually a little lower down, closer to where the penis oh, really? would be able to hit it. Oh, I, I see, I see. Yeah, I gotcha. Funny, when, when I was like 21 or something, I fell across this with one of my girlfriends couldn't have, she'd never had an orgasmic, a vaginal penetration. While having sex, she'd never had an orgasm. And it happened between us because I was falling around and I was kind of leaning with my pelvis on her pelvis. Right. So we're having sex and she had this orgasm. And of course, because I was leaning on it, that's why I was wondering if it was like sometimes if it's higher up at the top, guys might accidentally do that as also. Right. What you were doing was it sounds like you were leaning your pelvis against her clitoris. And that's why also the woman on top position, the female superior position, is often a position that the majority of women can more easily have orgasms from because they're really able to uh, fine-tune the clitoral stimulation. Great, great. Okay, so in terms of cunnilingus, I guess guys might be a little bit worried about how they breach the subject, like kind of, first of all. I think some guys are kind of used to, you said like they're used to having like normal sex and stuff, and they might feel a bit embarrassed about introducing the subject or or starting with it? Have you come across that in the past? I've definitely come across cunnilingus taboos that both men and women experience. I mean, some men um, maybe feel like they don't know what they're doing. Some men have been taught to think that a woman's vulva may be uh, unclean or unhygienic. Generally, I find that women have a lot more taboos than men. A lot of women suffer from a lack of genital self-esteem. They feel like, oh, my vulva doesn't look like a porn star's, so he's not going to like doing it, or I take too long to orgasm, or maybe I don't smell good or taste good. So I generally find that um, women have more insecurities around receiving cunnilingus than men do, and I try and guide men to really focus on creating a very, very loving, supportive, sexy context, because giving oral sex to my mind, uh, is not a task or a chore. It's a highly arousing, loving, pleasurable act. You brought up some great points there. It's more the concern of the girls, and that reflects my experience as well. Like some of them would be nervous about you going down on them. So practical tips, I mean, things like just going for um, a shower before, like a nice shower where you bathe each other um, beforehand, then she's that's not as big a concern for her if it has been. Absolutely. The other thing that I would say about oral sex is that many men sort of approach it as kind of like an appetizer or something to engage in briefly before the main act of sex. But I really encourage men to think about oral sex as a complete act of lovemaking that culminates with her orgasm. Men also need to remember that most women do have a a multi-orgasmic capacity. So even if she has had 
her first orgasm through oral sex, which is far better than her having no orgasm, which is often the case, that doesn't mean that your orgasm can't follow on fast and be almost simultaneous or that she will not go on to have further uh, orgasmic uh, experiences. So that's sort of the philosophy behind She Comes First is to take oral sex, to extend it into a complete act of lovemaking that really maps to her arc of arousal, culminates in her orgasm. I think many men, again, either approach oral sex as something that you do at the very beginning for a short period of time, and also when, in fact, oral sex isn't always the best thing to begin with. I mean, really, oral sex, I think, is not really so much part of foreplay, but really should start once two people are much more highly aroused. Because uh, if a woman is not really highly aroused, then oral sex, it may tickle, it may feel uncomfortable, uh, it may feel too intense, the stimulation. So you really want to be sort of sexually warmed up before you transition into oral sex. I think a lot of men also worry like, is my tongue a mini penis? I've had women tell me he approaches oral sex like a, a cobra fighting off a mongoose or the running of the bulls in Spain. It's just like a mad stampede for my clitoris, you know? And uh, I, I often encourage men to take it slowly, to be gentle, sometimes to be still. If you think about it as a dance in which the woman is leading, sometimes just being still and providing a consistent point of resistance and really letting her do the movement and letting uh, her establish the rhythm. So there you're talking about a point of resistance. It would be there's a your tongue is flat and it, it's kind of lying against it and she can move. Yeah, your tongue is flat or even there's an area called the uh, front commissure, which is just above the clitoral glands. So just above what we would consider to be the clitoris, there's an area that's sort of rife with a uh, nerve tissue. Is this on the hood or? Yeah, it's right over the hood. Oh, kind of on top of it. Yeah, just pretty much sort of right on top of the hood. That area, you know, engorges with blood and it gets kind of um, wiry. And I often advise men if you can stimulate that area, certainly with your tongue, but even better if you just sort of raise your lips and just press your upper gum, just sort of where your teeth meet your gum, you press your upper gum against that area and let her push into your upper gum. So then you're really providing a point of resistance. And then with your tongue, you rhythmically stroke the clitoris and lick the vulva. Um, that's really a great combination because then she's really getting that um, pressure as well as the friction of your tongue. So it's, it's really about working with sort of um, your gum and your tongue. Great. I think you're opening a whole new dimension because most guys just think of licking the clitoris. That's, that's basically all it is. And I guess it's the question of rhythm and everything. But you just mentioned licking the vulva as well. So are we only talking about the clitoris or is this or is cunnilingus the, you know, when it's done well? Is Are we looking at other parts of it? So you just mentioned above the hood. Yeah, I think of cunnilingus, I think of, I guess, maybe uh, two, three, or four dimensions. I think of certainly the pressure against the front commissure or the area just above the glands or where the glands really starts to kind of become the hood. So definitely being able to apply pressure 
to that area. Then I think about rhythmically stimulating the clitoris with a tongue, being able to move your tongue left to right or up and down. I also think about stimulating the the vulva as a whole. So the inner and outer labia, the vaginal entrance. Uh, I think that there's also a point in which you want to be able to add... um, some uh, manual penetration with your fingers. So for example, if you take your index finger and your middle finger or just one finger or start with one finger and then go to two fingers and you insert your fingers inside her vaginal entrance, maybe you raise your fingers up so you're really pressing against the vaginal ceiling, which actually contains the G-spot. And you don't have to, by penetrating, I'm not talking about thrusting in or out. I'm just talking about inserting a finger or two, pressing up against the vaginal ceiling, and just providing that kind of um, support while you're also pressing your gum against her front commissure and stimulating the clitoris, or just being still and providing maybe a slow rhythmic movement with your tongue, but really letting her press into you and thrust into you, thrust into your mouth, much as if she were sitting on top of you in the female superior position. So a lot of men will complain, oh, cunnilingus is so much work. It starts to hurt my mouth. It starts to hurt my neck. I can't keep licking so furiously all the time. And I'm just like, if you're working hard it doesn't mean you're working well. And it doesn't have to be painful. In fact, it shouldn't be painful. It should feel amazing. And there's nothing better for a guy than really being able to slow down his own arousal, engage in an incredibly sort of turned on act of providing pleasure to build up all of that sexual tension and then to have a powerful orgasm of his own. So it's not at all a chore. It shouldn't be painful. If anything, it should be loving pleasurable and, and gratifying when done well. <laughs> this is a great resume. I'm thinking of some of the, the questions guys may have about this process. The interesting point you brought up is like, I guess it's not a race. And this actually happened to me when I was younger. I would I would get worn out because I, I guess I was going at it too hard. I'm not sure exactly what I was doing. It was quite a long time ago. Um, but I do remember like getting tired and like um, before she had an orgasm. And I guess I was basically I worked my muscles out because I was pushing too hard and I was I was going too hard. It's a long time ago, so I'm not sure. But if you're taking a much slower, more relaxed, pushing your tongue out so far, you know, these just little details which will give you a lot more stamina so that that kind of thing doesn't happen. Right, yeah, no, it really, it shouldn't feel like work. It shouldn't hurt. I mean, listen, you can, yeah, so your head is between a woman's legs. Her legs are sort of close together. You should be able to even lean your head, relax your head against her leg as though her leg is just sort of a soft pillow and really just nestle right in there, get your upper gum connected to her front commissure, lick at your own pace in a very slow rhythmic pace. What can be very exciting for women too is as they're approaching orgasm and they want more friction and and more pressure for you to sort of remain at your own sort of slow tantalizing pace can really increase the quality of the orgasm in the end. So I'd say picking between being the tortoise and the hare, you definitely want to put your money on the tortoise. That's great. That's great feedback. So nice, slow and rhythmic, Uh, keeping the same rhythm throughout. I guess another thing I've come across is when, when they do get aroused, if you can like speed up and be a lot harder. Because when women get aroused, they can take more stimulation in general. So 
Have you got any advice around that that area in terms of the pressure? Like, should we should be changing the pressure? She gets more aroused. Yeah, what I would say again is, if you approach it sort of from a learning perspective, and you know that you're always providing a sort of still point of resistance, she will take the lead in the pressure that she's comfortable with. And so we'll really take the guesswork out of it. What I would caution men against is sometimes your arousal may be on a, on a faster pace than her arousal. You may be ahead of her. And so you may be providing oral sex, using your tongue and a mouth in a way that's mapping more to your passion and how you're feeling than necessarily how she's feeling. Great. So with the hood, because we spoke a lot about the hood, should you pull the hood back when you start or do you leave that? Have you got an approach for that for the guys at home who don't know what to do with a hood? <laughs> Sometimes when you're first starting oral sex, if you want to just be very gentle, sort of you could take your two thumbs really right at the top of the mons pubis and just sort of pull back the mons a little bit and really just sort of expose the clitoris a little more and then just take a very uh, gentle, loving approach to how you orally caress uh, the clitoris. But the clitoris will retract, extend, engorge with blood. And so you basically just want to allow it to do what it wants to do. Okay, another huge myth I've heard many, many times, and it's in movies and all sorts of stuff, is you should do it as if you're doing tracing the alphabet. Yeah, I, I don't know uh, where that came from. I mean, first of all, I don't want to be thinking about the alphabet <laughs> when I'm loving my partner. Uh, I want to be connected. I want to be looking at her body or I want to be fantasizing about her. I just want to be enjoying it. I don't want to have to be thinking about some sort of routine. And so I think what men just really need to know is that it's not about the alphabet. Um, it's really just about that persistent rhythmic stimulation. And really it's about pressure to the front commissure and rhythmic stimulation of the clitoris. Great, great. Thanks. Good way to round off. I've got some closing questions, lightning round questions for you. What are the best ways for people to connect with you and learn more about what you're up to? Uh, I have a website, iankerner.com. I also co-founded um, a website called goodinbed.com that brings together many of U.S.'s leading sex experts. And there are ebooks and blogs, and there's a forum that I answer questions on. So I would say probably the best way to interact with me would be through goodinbed.com. Great, great. Thanks. I saw that site. I was going to ask you about it, actually. And uh, I guess you're going to talk about some of your offers on there, but are there other people besides yourself that you found or can be really helpful to people in this area? Oh, yeah, plenty. I mean, I love uh, a new book by Emily Nagoski, who's a colleague and a friend called uh, Come As You Are. That's a, a great a great book with a lot of wonderful insights into female sexuality. My friend uh, Debbie Herbenick at the uh, Kinsey Institute has some uh, wonderful books that are out. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think... Uh, Debbie and Emily are two uh, great resources for sort of cutting edge information on human sexuality. Great. Thanks for those. I've actually heard of uh, Emily's book also. I was interested to check that one out myself because I've heard good things about it. Uh, what would be the top three recommendations you would give to men to improve their life, say they're starting from scratch? What would be the top three priorities they should get, which would kind of move things along faster for them, change things, get them more satisfaction and so on? I'm going to keep this through the lens of sexuality. And I would say to um, a lot of men sort of sometimes wonder, like, why am I always the one that's initiating? Why does my partner not seem to always experience the desire 
desire the way that I do. And really, the, the latest science has shown that men experience spontaneous desire. So it takes very little for a man to suddenly feel desire and want to have sex. But women really experience um, responsive desire. And so men respond to a single sexual cue. Women respond to multiple sexual cues. So I would tell men to create a, a context that facilitates that uh, responsive desire. To remember that for women to really enjoy sex and experience orgasm, parts of the brain that are associated with stress and anxiety really need to deactivate. So to focus on creating a safe, secure, loving, uh, attached space. And then I think the third thing that I would say is really don't forget that that sex can be entirely mental and psychological. And that don't just rely on the physical scripts that you have. Incorporate fantasy, incorporate communication, incorporate talk. Really make sure that you are stimulating your partner mentally and psychologically as much as you are physically. Ian, those are really outstanding points. Great. Very rock solid points there. Thank you so much for your time today. Really enjoyed the chat. Hey, it was lovely talking. Good luck. Bye. Take control of your dating life today. Take one idea or one insight from today's episode and apply it today. Don't wait. Do it today. That's all it takes to change your life. Step by step, episode by episode. Learn more about what I, Angel Donovan, and my team do at DatingSkillsReview.com. How we help men like you take control of their dating lives.